0: I think it's acknowledging, I'm the new kid on the block and I'm gonna act like it. I'm not gonna pretend that I know things that I don't know anything about. I think that's really important. And I think the sort of genuine curiosity and desire for knowledge, that's always been something consistent with me, fascinating to understand these different areas, but just having an openness to a new area, putting aside a little bit of fear. There's no question on those first days in each of the jobs. I was like, oh my God, what am I doing? I don't know. But I think if you come at it very authentically and say, look, I I don't know, but I'm willing to do the work. I'm willing to sit down and read and listen from people who know, but at the same time say, I may have something to add to this. I think that's really what it's about.
1: Welcome to Lawyers Who Lead,
0: a podcast that challenges
1: the notion that the law lags behind. I'm your host, Seagal Barnes. Each week, I invite a lawyer who's making powerful changes through extraordinary leadership. In each episode, we'll travel through another lawyer's life, identify what they do best, and then devise how to apply these concepts to your own world. So let's get to it. Welcome to Lawyers Who Lead. I'm your host, Seagal Barnes. Our guest today is the global lead for risk management and regulatory compliance at Twitter. She is also a board member of Behind the Book, a nonprofit that inspires literacy engagement through immersive programs for New York City students from underserved communities. Please extend a very warm welcome to today's Lawyer Who Leads, Jisha Diamond. Jisha, thanks so much for being
0: here. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited. My first podcast.
1: (laughs) I can't believe that to be true. It's really crazy and I feel so honored to be your first. We actually chatted a bit before this recording about how it's been a really long time since we last spoke. I think the last time I saw you was randomly on a subway 5 or 6 years ago and it feels like a lifetime ago.
0: It does. I'm doing great. I mean, and you know, we're in the middle of a pandemic and it feels like a lifetime right there, but I'm good. I'm I'm working on success and prosperity and goodwill. So it's all all good.
1: Absolutely. So, Jisha, you are the global lead for risk management and regulatory compliance at Twitter, which is awesome. And I can't wait to learn more about that. But before we go there, if you could share with our listeners a little bit about the journey of how you got to where you are today.
0: Sure. So I am a child of immigrants, and my parents came to the States from India in the 70s looking for a better life. I'm their oldest child so the guinea pig who went through all the stuff. But I was the first to go to college in my family, went to college, graduated, and I think I've always wanted to be a lawyer, like ever since I was a kid, pretty much. The doctor route wasn't ever an interest, uh, even though Indian parents, it's always the first choice. I always wanted to be a lawyer. so. I went to college in Chicago, left because I wanted to go to a city that was bigger, where I could get away from my giant immigrant family. And New York was the, you know, (laughs) the next biggest one. So I came to New York for law school. I started off at a larger firm. I summered there and got an offer, you know, run-of-the-mill, corporate securities, litigation, a lot of hours, et cetera. I slept under my desk one time, and I thought, hmm, this doesn't seem like... How it should be. <laughs> and after a year, one of my professors from law school said, "Hey, there's this firm that's starting a corporate political activity group. It's a small firm, but you know we've always enjoyed talking about politics. It might be something interesting. So I joined this firm doing corporate political work, which is basically you know representing companies on their political work. So lobbying, campaign, finance, election work, nonprofit work, and also representing political campaigns. Which was super exciting, being in this sort of environment of campaigns, which are fast and young and vibrant, and you have to think on your feet, and you're dealing with larger-than-life figures because you know elected officials tend to think of themselves very highly. I did that for a decade, and then one of my clients, J.P. Morgan, they needed somebody for uh, secondment. I joined them, and I thought, this is great. I love in-house work. This is awesome. I love working with a team, like a set team. I can work with all the different people in this company. I was going to be in-house and started in a legal role, moved to compliance, and then an opportunity came up to go to a multi-strategy asset manager. And it was really about rebuilding the compliance program there. The fund had been subject to a significant record-breaking fine from the DOJ and the SEC, and... The government said you guys need to rebuild your compliance program so i was part of the team to help rebuild it this was a huge shift for me i had been historically a lawyer's lawyer advising clients and giving legal advice but shifting over to compliance definitely required a new skill set focusing on operational practicality how to actually implement the advice and build technology that could facilitate writing policies that made sense and were digestible, et cetera. It also required me to learn a new area of law, the Advisors Act, which is not something that I was all that familiar with, but I've always been an intellectually curious person. If I see this thing, I want to read about it. So I'll hit the books and do the thing that I need to do to figure it out. And that was sort of an area that broadened my portfolio. It was just general compliance. Did that for many years, shifted over to a head of enterprise risk, where it became really important for companies to start managing risk. And when you're coming from the financial sector, it's sort of part and parcel. You're mandated to do it from a regulatory perspective in some ways. But it was an interesting area. It was another sort of shift because it's a different skill set. I think you're managing up a little bit more, trying to find data as opposed to dealing with people and policies. And I was doing that when I got a call from a recruiter at Twitter. And it was pretty awesome. It was perfect timing. I think I had begun to sort of say to myself, is making rich people richer really making it? Are you really happy doing that? The mission was beginning to matter. You know, I had three children at that point, And I was like, what, what am I doing here? Am I making a difference? And Twitter, I think for me, was another shift where now we're going to go into the area of technology and social media, completely different from the Advisors Act, and understand what it means to deal with content regulation when a government says, hey, you got to take down those tweets. You know, it's a whole different ballgame. And I think the company was also about shifting mindset in terms of culture, right? Asset management versus a tech social company. It's like as about as opposite as it gets. At Twitter, I started off as, you know, head of US regional compliance, sort of general compliance did that for about a year and a half and then was asked to shift to a, another risk role and regulatory compliance to deal with our regulatory mandates. And here I am like 20 years later, you know, after graduating law school I'm loving it. Wow. That is quite a journey. (laughs) Yeah. There is so much.
1: There's so much that I want to talk to you about. (laughs) I'm going to rewind us all the way back to the beginning for a second. So you say that you're the oldest child, first to go to college, always wanted to be a lawyer. Yeah. I find that very interesting because a lot of the time when I speak to lawyers, that is not the first thing that they wanted when they were a child. So I would love to start there. What was it as a child that made you want to be a lawyer?
0: Yeah, you know, and part of it I think was like people putting it into my head where I just talked a lot and fought a lot for people or for myself. And my parents and aunts and uncles were like, oh, yeah, she's going to be alert, you know, like yeah. it just started then. <laughs> and I think it probably led me to that a little bit. But there was something about the justice system. And I think coming from a community of color where People didn't understand the system. And as the oldest child of an immigrant family, a lot of times you're the translator, you're the advocate. You have to figure out all the stuff so that your parents can do it. Them just not understanding sort of even the culture, but also dealing with institutions, et cetera. I think at an early age, that became sort of my role. I don't think that's all that uncommon for a lot of kids in that situation, but it just became sort of like, there's all these people who do not understand the system. And it's really about having someone to guide you through there. And I think that really kind of led to law school.
1: Yes. I, I feel like I still am that person in my family.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh yeah. Totally.
1: <laughs> I mean, I still get, I'm like, mom, dad, I haven't practiced law in a really long time. They're like, just, you know, figure it out for me and let me know what's going on. Just break it down.
0: <laughs> yeah, I still get the parking ticket inquiries. I'm like, oh, yeah. No, no, all no, the don't <laughs>
1: Awesome. So you graduate from law school and you're in big law for a while, and you have this moment where you even slept under your desk. There must have been something there, an aha moment perhaps. Help me understand what that moment looked like for you.
0: Yeah, I, I knew, I think early on, that like there is a certain amount of work that you have to do to become a lawyer, right? You graduate from law school and you think you know things, but you don't know anything. We, you can do as many internships as you want, but I still think law schools can do a better job of preparing you know, students about getting that practical experience that you need to succeed. But I think just writing a lot of the memos and it wasn't really doing it for me. And I knew that being in the courtroom or whenever I had to file things, even though we had people to do that. I, I enjoyed doing that. I kind of wanted that hands-on sort of work. But I think it was also about the opportunity itself. I didn't even know at that time that political law was a thing. And it was mostly done out of firms in D.C., Washington, D.C. firms that were focused on you know, lobbying, et cetera. Somewhere out of New York, New Jersey, it just wasn't all that common. I really didn't know it existed. And so then when I started seeing what it is that we were talking about, what are the issues... And that there was a lot of like sort of unknowns. It was an area where it wasn't as developed as before Citizens United. There was existing case law, certainly, but it was definitely a hot topic. And I think that was a big part of it, too. You know, shifting over to yet another larger firm wouldn't, wouldn't have done anything, I don't think, for me. I went to, at the time, it was a 30 person law firm. It was a huge shift. And as a result of that, I got to be the one to go to court. I got to be the one that, you know, argue the appeals before the appellate division or go to the New Jersey appellate division and argue in court. I love that part of lawyering. I love that part of just advocating and being in front of the judge, having the hot bench, being prepared. And I got to do that. And so that I think for me, it was like the area law that I would be shifting over to as well as like it's a smaller firm I'm going to be able to do all the hands-on stuff that I really want to do yeah it reminds
1: me of what we were talking about earlier where your parents were like oh jisha loves to argue just loves to advocate <laughs> yeah. you know you were you were doing what child jisha wanted to do yeah you finally absolutely. you were finally there I, I know people are just listening to this but I can see you light up when you talk yeah. about that and it's really really cool to see. So you make the shift, which, by the way, you made three shifts, it seems, or four shifts within your career. Tell me, how do you do that? How do you approach the shift itself?
0: I mean, one, I think it's acknowledging that I don't know anything, right? Acknowledging that I'm going into this new area. It's super exciting. I'm the new kid on the block, and I'm going to act like it, right? I'm not going to pretend that I know things that I don't know anything about, I think that's really important. And I think the sort of genuine curiosity and desire for knowledge, right? I think that's always been something sort of consistent with me, fascinating to you know understand these different areas, but just having an openness to a new area, putting aside a little bit of fear. There's no question on those first days in each of the jobs. I was like, oh my God, what am I gonna do? What am I doing? I don't yeah. know. But I think if you come at it very authentically and say, look, I I don't know, but I'm willing to do the work. I'm willing to sit down and read whatever it is that you want me to read and listen from people who know, but at the same time say, I may have something to add to this. I think that's really what it's about. I mean, at each of the places, each of the sort of shifts, I had great people around me that knew a lot and from whom I wanted to learn. When I went to the, the fund, it was like, there was these people who had been advisors at lawyers their entire life. Like that's what they knew. That's what they did. And it was intricate. There's a lot that goes to it. And there's a lot of scrutiny from regulators if you screw up, but these are people, you know, one of my bosses was a former partner at Morgan Lewis. He had been a partner for 30 years in this area. He was like a mathematician. And I was like, Holy crap. You just know so much. And He was also one of the first people who I thought really showed me that being like a good manager to your people is about being empathetic, is is really about understanding them. It's not about just saying, did you do your work? How far are we along on this? Have you made progress? Let's do the weekly meeting. It was really about understanding your whole situation. And anyway, I think I deviated a little bit from the question, but...
1: No, I, I think it's really great because one of the questions I was going to ask you was who was someone who really shaped your journey? Would you say that this individual was one of those people?
0: He was definitely someone who showed me that like you can be incredibly effective by being empathetic and kind and sort of understanding people's situations. And let's be real, he was a older white man. Like he was not necessarily the person who needed to understand this. Brown Girl's perspective, but I think he did a great job about that. Another boss that I had when I was at the law firm, he was totally my sponsor. Like he was out there fighting and saying, no, 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 you got to push past your, at the time we weren't using these words, but he was sitting there going, you have to push back past your implicit bias. You have to push past your traditional vision of what you see as a lawyer. You have to push back the people you're friendly with just because she doesn't play golf doesn't mean she's not a great lawyer. At the time, we weren't articulating it that way, but like now that I look back, you know, I'm like, wow, he really was beyond his own time and sitting there um, advocating. But I feel like those bosses that really kind of put something out there and have something to lose, that's, that's rare, it doesn't happen all the time, for sure. Plenty of people didn't care, but that's always, you know, it's such a eternally grateful for that kind of stuff.
1: Talk to me about how those experiences have informed how you practice today.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think that when I think about leadership or leading a team, right, the notion of giving the credit, taking the blame is a a big one for me, where it really reflects integrity. It reflects your understanding of your role. What is it that you did or didn't do that caused that issue or that problem were you not clear enough? Were you not um, communicating enough? I think that's an important thing where I take that very seriously, where if, you know, we screw up on something, then I'm going to be the one. I'm totally the one who's taking responsibility on that. And I think sharing credit, you know, showcasing this person on your team who did amazing work is such a key part of it. And I think the side effect of that is a team that is willing to go to bat for you. They know that you have their back, that you're going to You know, be willing to take the hits and so therefore they're going to work harder. And I think that's such a a key piece of how I approach getting the team together. And I think vision, I think people sometimes downplay this, but like, where are we going? I think people always want to know where are we going? What are we trying to do? What's the big picture here? Like, I know I do this thing where I approve this or don't approve it every day, but like, what's the big picture? What are we doing? I think that's such an important thing. And it could be like, a small team in a small area, but still I think it really matters. And being able to explain that even for people above you, I think is such a key part of that that approach as well. Too.
1: Yeah, so. the context, right? The why mm-hmm. behind the things that we do and why and how they affect the larger picture and how they totally. can move things forward and having the ability to communicate that both to your team and upwards.
0: Yeah. And I think with compliance teams, you know, I think sometimes it can be difficult work because they're they're very internal facing, right? Your client is mostly the internal employees as opposed to the millions of our users, right? But I think for me, a lot of times it's like you are indirectly serving those people because what you're trying to do is enable your client, the employees, to act with integrity, responsibly innovate our products and do it in a way that adds to the public conversation in a good way without harm, right? And I think that's our role, is to make sure that we support our people to build those amazing products and features, but do it in a way that we don't add harm to the world. I think that's, that's a very important. I think people, most people, they're on board with that.
1: I love that term, responsible innovation, Can we dig a little deeper there? What does responsible innovation
0: mean to you? Oh, gosh, I have no idea. Um, (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's I think that particularly in, in 2022, when the conversation is about, you know, the meta universe and children and social media, I think that we're entering an era where algorithms have the ability to do so much good, but also so much harm right? Whether it's like policy issues, culture issues, discrimination, etc. You have these technologies that have the potential to do amazing, wonderful things, but also have the amazing potential to do terrible, horrible things. And so how do we thoughtfully do that? And I think a lot of times our teams, they just need reminders to say like, you know, what is our value set as a company? it's to have a purpose and to be this public conversation. And sometimes we don't agree with everything people say, but I think most of us feel like it's an incredibly important core part of our job that we're not adding to the, uh, the super negative parts of our, our society.
1: Well, I think it speaks volumes to Twitter to have people like you on the team who are really kind of ensuring that this kind of responsible innovation is happening. And someone like you really ensuring that the compliance is done in a way that is thoughtful and meaningful. So, tell me a little bit more about your experience shifting to a place like Twitter, and particularly from a cultural perspective.
0: Yeah, I mean, I've been at Twitter a little over two years, and I have learned more in this two years about culture than I think I have for like a decade. I mean, it was such a huge, huge shift where, believe it or not, I'm, I always get into these conversations with my friends who are like, Oh, why do you work at Twitter? It's like <laughs> the pain <laughs> of society right now, Facebook, Twitter, whatever. And I'm like, well, you know, this is a company that truly, you know, one of our sort of principles is to marry profit with purpose. And it really, every day, I mean, it, you know, we're a public company, there's obviously obligations to shareholders, et cetera, all that, all that good stuff. But the purpose is such a core part of, of the company. I think Twitter announced a couple of years ago that it wanted to be the most diverse tech company in the world within five years, which is like an incredibly ambitious goal. And a lot of very smart public companies would never say that because meeting that goal then becomes a big challenge. But they've said it and they are doing everything that they can to do it. And it's not just about sort of the numbers. It's like, how do we have healthy conversations at this company? How do we have a respectful conversation where we're talking about facts that we disagree on without getting into nonsense, right? Without getting into insults or kind of Uh, negative behavior. Like there's training for every employee on how to have healthy conversations, providing feedback. Let's describe the situation, describe the behavior, describe the impact. Don't go into all that other stuff. Like keep it to these things so that this person can grow. I mean, feedback as a gift is like a huge line of Twitter. Like feedback is gift. Like someone is giving this to you because they care about you. They're not hurling something at you. They're trying to get you to grow, which is, you know, incredibly important. And I think the impact of employees. If if employees on the Slack channel start blowing up about something, the staff is so good about we call our executives, the staff. They're really good about saying, okay, hold up. Did we screw up? We need to take a look, right? There's none of this sort of like forging ahead because we'd made this decision. There's a lot of introspection and I, I, I really appreciate that. And I think that I would say most of the places that I've been at prior to here, it wasn't like that, right? It was not even close. And I think, you know, I've had all the experiences of walking into a conference room and the nice partner gentleman asking me to get coffee. And I'm like, "Mm." (laughs) or, you know, always being the one asked to take notes, right? Mm -hmm. Um, You know, all those behaviors, but Twitter, it's like, there's really sort of a, they're like, everybody take a look, like, what, what are we doing? When we ask someone to take notes, like, did we, you know? So, yeah, for me, it's been huge about just sort of shifting away to a culture of like, empathy and collaboration, and we're in this fight together and we, we know what the ultimate goal is and let's get there.
1: I learned yeah. so much about Twitter that I did not know today. <laughs>
0: I hope good, yeah.
1: And really, really impressive stuff, important stuff, especially for an organization with so much influence on society. Again, I feel particularly impressed with knowing they have people like you on their team doing this kind of work. So thank you for sharing that. I want to move a little bit to a few other questions, some rapid fire questions, if you will. Let's do it. There was one thing you could improve about the legal industry. What would it be?
0: You know, it's an an interesting one. I feel like in-house is a little bit different than private practice, right? I think private practice, the law firms, they still have a lot of work to do in terms of diversity efforts. I'm able to see what it takes to move needles, and it's Herculean. Like, it's a lot of work. You have to start from that pipeline. And so I think the industry is still looking at it at the top. Do we have enough partners that are of color, female, et cetera? But You really gotta start way earlier than that. Like are our law schools, is the LSAT structured in a way that advances people of a certain, you know, like we really have to take a broader look at the industry. I think that's an incredibly important one because like I said, there are a lot of people like me who come from communities where they don't have the advocates. And so we need people that are advocates that are coming from those communities and going back to their communities. And so I think the industry could do probably a lot more to facilitate that and do better on that. So that's definitely something that's really important. And I think from a substantive perspective, every once in a while, I still think we can do a little work to get lawyers to advise in a very practical, actionable way. I still outside counsel every once in a while, I get these memos and I'm like, okay, Thank you for the recitation of the law. What am I going to do with this? (laughs) I can't hand this to somebody here because, you know, and so I still think we could do that, but that's like, I think small compared to like. And it all depends on
1: where you have, et cetera. I think both counts are extremely important (laughs) and they can be intertwined as well, right? This effort to effect change in really practical ways in which people can actually take action versus this academic discussion around those things. So agreed. And on that note of advocacy and helping people grow that have historically not had those opportunities, you also do work for behind the book can you tell me a little bit about the work that you do there?
0: Yeah, yeah. Behind the Book is this awesome organization based out of New York City. It was founded by a woman named Jo Mons about 30 years ago. She's the executive director still. And what we do is go into underserved schools in New York City, primarily in the Bronx uh, and Manhattan. And build literacy programs in New York City schools. So we go into the school, work with the teachers. We have program managers in the organization that go in there and help the teachers. They teach, they provide books, they bring the author into the schools so that the kids can see this is what an author is. They do a lot of exercises, you know, lessons from the books, and we try to focus on authors of color, plots that are around communities, color, et cetera, so that the kids that are reading this can see their lives reflected. So it's incredibly intentional. And every time I go to one of the classrooms and observe one of our program managers, I'm just blown away by it. It's just really, and anybody who comes in, they're always like, oh wow, this is amazing. And, and during the pandemic, I think we all realized that some school districts, like my kids, passed out an iPad or a Chromebook to every kid. Whereas in these schools that Behind the Book serves, you had a family of five on one phone without Wi-Fi. How much did those children lose in this pandemic? I don't think we have come close to quantifying that, but the organization did huge efforts to get Chromebooks, which were, by the way, there was a huge shortage of Chromebooks because you know every school district was trying to get their hands on getting Chromebooks to kids, figuring out how to do these virtual classes, getting backgrounds on their computers for kids because they didn't want to show the apartment that they were living in. Right. You know, things some of us don't even have to think about. So yeah, I, am totally passionate about it. Love it. I think it's, it's extraordinary and it's local, right? NYC for me is like at this point home. So anyway, I can't, that I could, I could talk about it forever.
1: I think it's wonderful work (laughs) that you do. And on that note, what would you say is the most influential book you've ever read?
0: Yeah. I that's a good one. It's funny. um, Atticus Finch is a huge character. Obviously, for me, it was very influential. In fact, I named one of my kids out of his. So that book is definitely a big one. I also think, what is the what? Which is the story of a group of boys called the Lost Boys from Sudan, where they're making this journey, trying to get out. And that book, I read it and I was like, holy smokes, there's a whole world that I don't even know about struggle. So that was a big one for me.
1: I did want to ask you also if you could give one piece of practical advice to our listeners and these are leaders and future leaders in the law looking to follow your lead now that we've talked about all of your experiences what would be that one piece of practical advice
0: I think it's about telling the truth I think as lo- a lot of times as lawyers we're there to give counsel like I take the word counselor as very seriously to give advice and counsel and I think being truthful is incredibly important to build your credibility and to be that person that they can rely on. If you're gonna just paint rosy pictures and lead your client down this road that isn't so rosy in reality, I don't know. I think it's just being truthful, which includes being authentic, being who you are. Sometimes people may not be ready for who you are, but that's a different story. But I just think being truthful in, in a respectful and authentic way is incredibly important.
1: Agreed. What does leadership in the law mean to you?
0: You know, I don't. I don't even know if leadership is different in the law or other. You know, in any field, I think leadership is. It is about being authentic. It is about setting that vision. It is about being a motivator. It is about having your teams back and. Yeah, I mean, I think it, it it touches on that question. Sort of touches upon a lot of the things we talked about. I think I think those are really sort of the things that you know are about leadership.
1: And lastly, what is your go to self care practice?
0: Okay, self care. What's that again? <laughs> I mean, I mean, honestly, it's it's the biggest challenge for me. Like mother of three, full time working, it's a big challenge. And I remember my company has days of rest, like once a month. There's this day where everybody the entire company kind of shuts down and it's like faux pot to work you know the whole thing awesome and yeah it's awesome but like people would be like engage in self-care and i'd be like i'm getting stressed out thinking about self-care because i don't know what to do mm-hmm. so it took a little time but yoga is a big piece for me i started practicing about a decade ago and it's huge for me you know having that sort of physical and mental break it's for me it's both a physical and mental break that's super important And reading a good book i feel like 2022 has really been for me about sort of retraining my brain to not desire so much distraction i mean like most of us right we're like hooked on distraction like sitting and staring at a space is really hard for a lot of us now Mm -hmm. so trying to get back to just reading book on paper not on a screen like actually using paper that to me, I love it. Like when I when I get into a really fantastic book, I just finished reading this book called Crying in H Martin, holy smokes. It's about this green American woman whose mother dies and like it's it's about culture, food, so many things. But I just well, now you're speaking my language. <laughs> I'm definitely gonna read that. <laughs> oh yeah. It was so Crying powerful. In food. <laughs> yeah, I know. It was just so powerful about like, you know, the immigrant experience about how food plays such a huge part absolutely anyway but yeah i think uh, yoga and reading are big for me i guess when my kids go to bed early thank you yeah
1: (laughs) i can definitely relate to that that's for sure My kids are not doing that very often these days, but but when they do, it is a gift. Wonderful, Jisha, thank you so much. On behalf of the leaders and future leaders listening, I want to thank you so much for being here. If someone wanted to connect with you online, I think I know what the answer is going to be, but if they want to connect with you online, how can they do that?
0: They can definitely come to my Twitter handle at Jisha Diamond. I'm also on LinkedIn. I haven't figured out how to like, I get a lot of DMs. It's interesting. People think that you have... Power over their Twitter handles. Like, if their account gets shut down, so then they'll DM me, and I'm like, I have nothing to do with that. (laughs) But anyway, I'm at Twitter, hit me up. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Tisha. Thank you. This has been awesome.
1: to get the special offer. Check out Lawline for the best content for leaders and future leaders in legal.